Cover cropping around the world in 30 minutes. I'll see if I can get that done. I've been uh, quite a few places over the last several years, and I thought it'd be fun just to talk about some of those places. Just want to start right off with Australia. And, of course, you know, the first time I went to Australia, I was there, I've been there twice, you know, I just wanted to be able to see a kangaroo. And uh, I was able to see some. I'm just showing you a sign here. Uh, actually, we almost hit one on the road one night. That was kind of uh, interesting. But um, the reason uh, I was in Australia, of course, was uh, had to do with cover cropping. I just want to highlight one of the farmers that I saw. His name is Tom Robinson from, uh, I guess I'm going to say South Central, Southeastern Australia. And he made a comment. He said, I want to be the driest farmer in the world who uses cover crops. And I found that interesting because most farmers find it difficult in dry climates to even think about using cover crops. But he had, he really uh, grasped the uh, all the opportunities that cover crops can can uh, bring with soil health and so forth. And if you look closely in this picture here, this was actually stripper headed wheat wheat that was taken off with a stripper head, and then of course no till planted cover crop. And if you, if you look closer, you can see there's not a lot of seeds there. But that was the right seeding rate for those areas. So using a super low seeding rate, probably 25% of what we would normally, uh, what I'm used to anyway, in uh, in cover cropping. So again, adapting to those conditions is important. Another farmer that we visited in, well, I was in Australia, is uh, Josh Walters, who was a little bit further east. And he made a comment that I've always uh, appreciated, I guess, you from, from the context of, uh, of being a dry area. And he said, we need to build a bigger bucket. And what he really meant by that when I asked him was, we want to catch every drop of water that falls out of the sky. And we want to keep it there uh, so that our cash crop can use it later on. So, again, it's a mentality of how this all works out that's really, really important in this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then I was back in, in another year and was actually on Josh's farm where they had, that time they had uh, significant rains. Exact same farm here and just beautiful lush cover crops. And and their their whole opinion of, of this is get yourself set up for when that ideal scenario comes. You get a couple timely rains that you can actually make or utilize the effects of the cover crop that really can make a difference in the next several years to come when it does get dry, because they know they, they go through these dry cycles. It's just kind of natural uh, in the climate there. So just really interesting for me to see that dynamic both times. Now, this is down in Tasmania in Australia. You look at that soil and you think, you know, what that, that can't be good. Look at that color. It's red. But... That's very good soil, actually. It's volcanic uh, background uh, in the soil, so that's why it's red. But when you look at the soil, you could tell that it was pretty good. Now, this soil is tilled up here. Uh, there was, I believe, potatoes grown in that field, so it had been tilled up and disc and so forth. But I just wanted to show you some of the, the soil and how it looks. It's certainly different than a lot of us are used to. A lot of carrots are grown in, uh, in Tasmania. It's a cooler season climate. It's southeast of most of Australia, an island surrounded by water. So because of that, it remains cooler throughout 
the uh, throughout the year actually, and it's very temperate. One of the farms I was on actually grew broccoli 52 weeks out of the year. Every single year they planted broccoli. So that was kind of interesting. Here's a field of carrots. I guess I should say a field prepared to grow carrots. And as you can imagine, the potential for erosion there is very significant. But they actually were starting to seed annual ryegrass in those row middles there in order to uh, help uh, slow down the erosion a little bit. So that was like one tiny step in the direction of using cover crops. So let's switch back over to France now. I've been there many times. One of the things that continues to amaze me about France is they farm up and down these steep hills. And sometimes it's um, even in conventional tillage. I, asked, I, was at, I was with one farmer, and it was the, 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 the field was plowed straight up and down the hill. And I said, why do you plow up and down the hill? And he said, well, that's because it drains better. The water drains better. And I'm like, no kidding. Yeah, it drains better, but you're losing a lot of your topsoil at that time as well. So anyway, it's just interesting to hear some of the dynamics behind some of the growing practices. Um, I spent a lot of time in soil pits in uh, in France because my friend is down here in a soil pit, my friend Frederick Thomas, he does lots and lots of field days. And so just being able to observe some of the difference, soil structure and soil type than, than I used to, especially around home here. But there's there's a soil pit is effective no matter what country you're in to be able to look at the rooting structure, look at the soil structure and so forth. One of the things in France that I was surprised where I saw them actually planting radishes as a cover crop and then plowing them up. And I'm like, I got to ask the question, why would you do that? Well, <clears throat> there's partly a reason why. One of them is that in, in most of Europe, they're required to plant cover crops if you don't happen to have a living crop or a cash crop that's unharvested between September the 15th and November the 15th. So they have to have something planted there. But then when that November 15th deadline passes, if it's not a farmer committed to no-till, they'll go in there and plow it up. And, uh, you know, I just don't understand that from my perspective, and neither do the no-tillers over there as well. But that's just a dynamic that we saw uh, occasionally. Now, here's some irony right here. I met the runner-up France plowing champion. I think he's a two-time runner-up plowing champion, which, <clears throat> of course, from my perspective is interesting. But would you believe this guy is actually a no-till farmer? 100% of his farm's no-till. He just happens to have the knack for plowing, and he has a competition plow right there in the shed behind him. And I said, well, what do you say, you know, what do you say when people, you know, when you win these events and, and, and you're a no-till farmer? He's, oh, I try to convince them to no-till. He said, my, my hobby is plowing, and I don't plow on my farm. I just do it for competition. So that was kind of ironic to be able to see that. And sure enough, uh, his, farm's, uh, his farm, which I was on, definitely was no-till. Uh, they still farm up and down the slopes, but this is one of his fields right there that you can see uh, where he actually was practicing what he preached, you might say, but uh, he still plows in the, in the competition. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic there. I've been able to be on uh, numerous different farms and see the typical differences between a history of cover cropping and no-till. Here is uh, Frederick Thomas's farm on the left-hand side, of course, 
That's the one that has been no-tilled and cover crop for the last 15 years. On the right is, is almost beach sand. Uh, what's interesting is I took this picture a couple years ago, and when I came back the last time, it'd be September a year ago, that field that's represented there on the right, he is now farming it. Uh, the, the the landowner said, I, I would really like you to farm my field. He actually has fields in his neighborhood. And by the way, th th this soil is not that good in that area. But he's had neighbors who abandoned their fields because it just wasn't worth farming. And they've seen what he's done on his farm. And they said, hey, if you clear that land off and and you want to try to farm for a couple of years, we'll let you do it for free. And he actually has access to compost, which is helpful for this. He's planting multi-species cover crops, and he's practicing no-till. He has been given the opportunity to take marginal land and see what he can do with it. So that's going to be interesting to see where that goes. But because of his reputation, he got this opportunity. And I think that's kind of significant there uh, to know that. <clears throat> you know, as, as, as I tour around the country and as I realize each of us have our challenges uh, one of the things that I, that's typical in France is wild pigs. They'll come out and they'll root up, they'll eat the cash crops, and you can just see a picture right there of the damage they do. It can be fairly substantial. And if you know anything about wild pigs, they can multiply very quickly. So it is a problem. I mean, some of us have slug problems. Some of us have other problems. But wild pigs are a problem in France. It's good to note, too, that fava beans are very, very popular there. It's a minor used crop here, but fava beans are popular. What's, what's interesting to me is when they say beans, when they just use the term beans, they mean fava beans, not soybeans. I quickly found that out. Another popular cover crop is phacelia. Some of you have heard about this, but it's, it's, like the, it's in the top five, for sure, of cover crops that are used. You see it everywhere. And it's very good, of course, for attracting insects and also for transitioning soil that has been addicted to tillage into better aggregation. It's something about the roots that really can transition the soil for better aggregation a lot quicker. I've seen all kinds of different rollers uh, in, in my trips to Europe. Uh, this is just one of them. It's actually a double roller. Uh, <clears throat> another thing is slugs are a problem. So I've seen different types of slug bait applicators. This is actually a very close-up of a closing wheel right there, the closing bracket. And you can see this is a diffuser that uh, they put slug bait out and it, spray, it, it, it spreads it behind the row as they're planting. Um, the other thing, too, is a monosem is one of the more popular planters there because it's a planter that's made in France. And that planter is they have a slug bait attachment. And, and as you can see there, there's top boxes across the top or to put slug bait in. And if you follow those little tubes down, you'll see that it's putting slug bait out right on top of the row. So that's the way you can get away with like one-fifth the rates or 20% of a normal rate. They're just putting slug bait in the row. I've seen this many times uh, uh, over there in their, their way to address slugs. Another thing to Monosim's credit is that they have adjustable toe-in adjustments. And since I'm not running video here because my internet is too slow, it's all it, I can't really show this here. But on the left-hand side is the lever to adjust the toe-in of the closing wheels. And uh, if you could just picture the wheel going in and out, uh, whereas 
So when when you have a tough closing condition, you can you can kind of rotate those closing wheels back so it does not take as much pressure to be able to close the slot. This Monosim is going to be releasing this in the U.S. this year, I've heard, and there's also some aftermarket manufacturers going to release adapters that can be put on John Deere Kinsey and and the, the mainstream planners uh, for the U.S. for this adoption. So I think that's uh, you know finally coming here. I think it's going to be really good. There's a lot of angle slot planters. You can see there with that planter how the the angle is is uh, it's kind of sloped. Down. I have another picture coming up here that might give a little bit better representation of it. This I saw. I counted at least four different uh, brands of planters that had similar configurations to this. It's a lot easier to get this planter in the ground because it kind of pulls itself in because it's tilted forward just a little bit, and because the seed is going in at an angle, or I should say, because the disc is going in an angle to get something planted. At a certain depth, it's actually cutting deeper than that, which means you get a better residue uh, residue cut <clears throat> for a better seed to soil contact than that. So it's definitely something that I hope um, that kind of technology comes to the U.S. Now let's go up to Germany. <coughs> Excuse me. This is one of the most complex soil pits I ever saw. Uh, where they were actually taking, they spent hours in that soil pit cleaning away the the roots very carefully cleaning away the root systems and it was it was it was kind of fascinating to see that and i kept looking a little closer and i i said what where did you get those tools and they said well they're actually dentist tools and i'm like wow that's uh that's something i never saw before so there you go guys you want to you want to impress your friends at a soil pit Get a set of dentist tools and start picking around the earthworm channels and the roots or something like that. Uh, but that was kind of fascinating to see that, uh, to see that kind of detail. Uh, and they were really approaching their soil pit with a lot of care. Let's visit a couple other countries, Belgium and uh, Romania. Uh, I had told you before that most of Europe needs to have a cover crop planted between the 15th of September and the 15th of November. Uh, if no cash crop is in the field at that time. And uh, also what's, what's interesting is most of these countries, you cannot use glyphosate as your initial method to kill a cover crop. Uh, you have to use a tillage pass first. And that presents a little bit of a challenge uh, in being able to do that. And it's all tied into subsidies. And believe me, everybody gets subsidies. But um, farmers have kind of worked around this a little bit where they get these like, you know, a roller or even like a weed tine carrow type that just lays the cover crop down. But since that that is characterized as a tillage pass, they'll do that to essentially get the cover crop rolled down or pushed in one direction, then they'll come in and spray it with glyphosate. So that's just some of the ways they kind of get around some of the regulations that they have in place there. Um, this next picture is in oil seed rape. <clears throat> if you uh, look at that, you can see some of the dead fava beans and other cover crops that were planted with the oil seed rape. This is in the springtime around March where it has winter killed all except the oil seed rape. And um, I talked about this in companion cropping last week. This is where I learned it. I learned it from Europe, and this is how it looks over there uh, when, when you see it. So 
it's it's quite a interesting dynamic, but I think one that we need to be looking more into in the future. So a little bit close up there, you can see how that looks in the in the spring, and uh, and and just how uh, here here's a close up of the white clover that's in there. That's going to stay underneath there when the oilseed rape is harvested at the end of June. It's going to be right there growing already. The next picture is uh, a, a plot that actually is a herbicide plot that Bayer Crop Science has used. They have uh, they're testing the effects of these cover crops that are companion planted with oilseed rape. I was just amazed that a chemical manufacturer would actually be doing this, would actually be working in the context of growing, uh, trying to match some herbicides with it. So it is interesting to see this kind of stuff. Uh, took a picture here of a picture. That's why it's not too clear. This is a farmer who is, uh, I can't say rolling. I'll just say a homemade cover crop pusher or whatever you want to call it, drag, whatever. But here he had some rubber mats, some tires, and a three-point hitch, and apparently a dog to help there on the hood of the tractor. But, again, fascinating, just fascinating to see what some people were doing in being able to manage their cover crops. So I do have another picture here of uh, what I was referring to earlier, of like what I'm going to call a tying weeder. Um, this machine is designed, like organic growers use it a lot to be able to, after they, after they plant, to be able to uh, just rogue out early germinating weeds. But this, this was actually bought as something to go the first pass over cover crops and then they can spray with glyphosate. Okay, let's go over to Romanium. <clears throat> I just took this picture. When you look close, you see all the narrow strips in the fields. Now, even if they're snow-covered, you can see there's narrow strips. Each, each of those narrow strips represent land that the government gave back to the people when communism fell. And so you'll run into these areas where there's a lot of little strips. That's, they're average one to three acres in size, and they were just randomly drawn out, if you will, in the across the countryside. Now, some families aren't interested in using them to farm. They don't even know how to farm, so they rent them to other farmers. So it's, it's, it's actually quite a mess sometimes to figure this all out. And, and how you're growing. I saw some fields that were 100 acres, and you saw this little strip right in the very middle of the field almost that someone owned and wouldn't rent it to them. They wanted to grow their own thing in there. So it creates a little bit of a problem in some uh, instances. I was on a 30,000-acre farm. This is some of their this is their equipment shed, a couple of their combines. I think they had about nine or ten of them there. So <clears throat> just uh, interesting in Romania, the big farms are basically ran by investors. These were investors from Portugal that ran this farm, and they uh, they hired people uh, to manage it, and they hired the locals basically to run the combines and so forth. So this is their 20 farm managers that I presented to one a whole day. Uh, so these are the people who actually oversee and manage the operations on this 30,000-acre farm. So that was a fun time uh, meeting with them and and just having a whole day with them, a lot of give and take and questions and answers and so forth. I saw this planter here from Spain um, that that I, I was intrigued with. It was pretty, um, I guess you'd say pretty modern in a way. One thing I'll just note that very, very, 
very few equipment seem to be put inside. I know they don't have the rainfall like some other areas of the world does, but you know, expensive equipment like that, I, I was surprised to see uh, so much of it sitting outside. And right here you go. This is a <clears throat> this is actually a uh, electric meter drive here uh, on on these planters. So these these planters were really, uh, I guess you'd say, up to speed and uh, and really modern in that respect. <clears throat> the other thing was their commitment to cover crops uh, or commitment to learning. We were out there. This was a cold day. Uh, the, there was snow. There was ice, but they were digging down through it. They were looking at the cover crops up that were underneath. We could hardly even see the different cover crop plots here because there was there was almost like six inches of snow everywhere. Uh, but it was it was it was interesting to see the soil was really good, uh, tremendous soil and. Um, it's where I got the, I had tried chickling vetch before, but this was planted after wheat and I was so impressed the way it looked uh, with the soil that I actually decided based on that to plant some myself, which I did after wheat on my farm this year. So, uh, that kind of influenced me there a little bit to actually use some of this, uh, chickling vetch is, looks more like a pea and sometimes it's called a grass pea. But AC Green Fix is a term you might be more familiar with. That's a brand name for this type of product. Uh, impressed with some of their export places. This is right along the river. This was only half of the grain bins there. Uh, so just to give you an idea that uh, not too shabby. Uh, pretty nice looking operation. Now let's go to Bulgaria uh, where, where wheat is king. That's their big cash crop. And, uh, boy, they got a good environment to grow out there. They they like to get 120 bushels or more, but it's, it's not that hard to hit 140, even 160 bushels sometimes. This picture you see right here, if it would be in my place in in Pennsylvania, I would be worried that that's going to that's gonna go down on me. But uh, because of the weather they have and they're able to, uh, they, they've really honed in the wheat growing uh, concept and they're, location with the with the ideal uh, weather they have and so forth for that so no doubt about it that wheat is is one of their well it is their biggest uh, cash crop so they're pretty good at it got to see some of their attempts at no-till one of the things that was typical for new new people is they're trying to no-till with a conventional planter and uh, they just tried a simple mustard cover crop over here on the right uh, I mean I would say good for them uh, but, uh, you know, a lot of adjustments on the planter probably were needed. Uh, not bad uh, to start, but that's why I was there, to try to help uh, them better set up the planter. Now, this is a different field and a different farm, but this this guy, I, I almost pitied him. He was trying to no-till with a shoe-type planter. I'm talking like the old 1950s and 1960s-style planter. And <clears throat> this is just looking right down. I saw corn everywhere. I bet at least 50% of the corn I could actually see. And I told him, I said, I just got to be honest with you. You're going to have to get a different planter here. I mean, literally, like, plowed open the the, the, the furrows almost. And uh, so that guy, you know, he's going to have to uh, do a little bit of homework. On the other hand, I visited some operations that were really, really nice in Bulgaria. Uh, this is one of the best farms I've ever seen in my life. I will tell you that the steps going up to the office, and right there is the office on the right-hand side there. 
the steps going to the office, they looked to me like they were marble. I think they were, um, but uh, that that place there was really nice and brand new equipment, new tractors sitting around. <clears throat> they had a really nice planter set up there, had uh, good closing wheels on. These these guys knew what they were doing, and I was with their agronomist. You see pictured here, a couple of them, and uh, just a real impressive operation. It was interesting. I was interested to find out when I left that it was a former commissioner of agriculture. So I figured he had some connection somewhere to, to have such a nice property, but I'll leave that there. <clears throat> now, this is another farm, impressive lineup of combines right there. But I, I wanted to show you this picture because this, I was all but dumbfounded. I'm talking to their agronomist. Okay. We're out in the field. We're walking around. We're looking at, we're looking at their farming operation. I said, so what's your organic matter in your fields? And they were dumbfounded. They said, we don't know. We never tested it. I said, you've never tested your organic matter. And apparently they hadn't because they didn't even know that that was even important. And you see an operation like this, obviously very, very huge, very big, very modern. They didn't know their organic matter. I couldn't believe it. Uh, so non, so in, in a way, there was that, that was kind of, I guess an obvious thing to to help them learn to distinguish what they're doing and give a benchmark to see if their you know farming practices will will improve that over time. So it's just amazing some of the stuff you run into. Another um, uh, Eastern European country is Hungary. Uh, very impressed with uh, the country as a whole. Um, I'll just say a lot nicer than I thought, but wow, did they ever do a lot of plowing over there? Uh, I saw, I think I saw two times four plows in one field. So, <clears throat> so that was really, really a sight to see. Uh, and, and uh, of course, it didn't take them long uh, to gather around me on out. And of course, I headed right to a, a cover crop field and these radishes would tell them about it. And they were, man, they were really attentive because they really didn't know a whole lot about cover crops. So it was, in a way, it was just fun to see fresh, I guess you say fresh um, enthusiasm, uh, really to learn the very basics. And, and and believe me, we had to go to the very basics this uh, to do this. Now, the event that I was there for, the meeting was a one-day meeting. That was, they said, the first soil health meeting in the country of Hungary. So it was really an, a great opportunity to be there and to to share with these guys. There was people from several other countries, countries that I've only heard in the news before. These two guys are from Serbia. They were making their own equipment. Uh, they were showing it to me. They were showing their pictures of their own uh, rollers they were making and no-till drills and stuff. It was just a lot of fun to, to see their enthusiasm for no-till, cover crops, soil health. One guy even drove 11 hours from Switzerland. He's a no-till farmer from Switzerland, and uh, it was just fun to meet him. Uh, I'm going to pause for a second here before I wrap up. I think I might open it up. Is there any questions so far any of you may have um, about anything I've shared so far or something I didn't quite cover right or so forth? So any questions from any of you, just unmute your mic and, and – uh, and ask right now if there's anybody. Any questions? Okay, let's move on, wrap this up. If you have any questions at the end, um, go for it. So I went to South Africa this past September. It didn't take long to find some cover crops. That was fun. 
one of the things that totally surprised me was how real the threat of fire was. What I didn't know was during their winter month, and they were winter months, was they were just coming out of winter in September when I was there, Southern Hemisphere, is the threat of fire. And this picture here of the smoke was one of the farms that was attending the big conference that I was there for. His farm was a part of this fire right here. And he had to leave the conference because his fields were on fire. And they had no rain, no snow over the winter, barely any. So things get very dry. So the threat of fire is one of their biggest challenges. Now, typically, they will go along their roads. And once the, the grass and weeds get dry enough in the fall, they'll burn off prescribed areas on both sides of the road to stop runaway fires or to eliminate cigarettes thrown out or something like that. Uh, so then when it gets really, really dry, it can help stop that. Even on farms, you will see strips, sometimes 50 or 100 yards wide, that the farmers will burn out once they, when they can still control it to be able to keep the threat of fire uh, or at least, at least slow it down. Uh, when it comes. And most all farms have a water tank filled, ready to go with a pump on it in case they want to try to stop a fire uh, that breaks out near their farm or wherever. So that that was a big deal that is important because the thing about no-till farmers is when you lose all that residue, you lose a lot of the benefits that you're getting. And at the meeting, this was a big deal. They were showing it. They were showing the research about what happens when fire takes the residue away from your fields. I had to show this. Um, I don't. It doesn't matter if you're a John Deere fan or not. This is what they affectionately call the John Deere weed right there in the middle. Uh, it's a green and yellow weed. I thought that was pretty funny, but that's what they call it. And I, I saw it here and there. It's not a noxious weed per se, but it is a weed. So uh, it's just kind of, it, it's just interesting some of the terminology here. The other thing that was a real honor for me was to actually meet the very first South African no-till farmer. And uh, he was kind of a, uh, he was a character, I'll just say. <clears throat> he started no-till in 1992, I believe it was. So it was a lot of fun to meet him and, and talk about, you know, his, his journey and where he's at today and all. So that was a lot of fun. Now, this conference I was at there in South Africa I uh, saw a lot of equipment from uh, very, very, very basics like this sprayer here. This is a ground-driven. It was driven by the wheel on the front there, so you pushed it, and you uh, were able to spray whatever you're spraying. The uh, adjustable height was in there. I don't know if I'd want to be doing that in a windy day. It'd be coming toward me, but uh, nonetheless, that's what it was. <clears throat> One of the other more fascinating um, uh, rigs was this uh, one row pool type planter designed to be pulled by oxen so there you go you want a one row no-till planter right there it is it's uh, that is all complete right there it's you got your fertilizer you got your seed you got your closing wheels and to a certain extent you the person is is the weight to help close the uh, the slot so kind of interesting to see that and to see all the different configurations they had for for subsistence type farmers that only farm a couple acres 
and uh, the the planters that have been made for that. Another thing is they had their cover crop plots and and uh, some of the same uh, species that we're familiar with. One of the more notable things here was cereal rye. I never saw such a difference of cereal rye, uh, late versus early maturity. That's one month difference there approximately. It's planted the same day. I thought that was interesting. I loved uh, taking some of those varieties here and see what they would have done. Well, let's just round out <clears throat> our trip tonight uh, with going up to the Peace River Valley in Alberta, Canada. I was just up there on uh, in the middle of November. Of course, the snow had already moved in. The thing that just really surprised me was how vast agriculture was up there. Uh, I mean, it was there's huge fields, huge farms. And uh, the, the thing that helps them mitigate their very short growing season is the long daylight hours that they have in the summer. They can grow a lot of forage in a, in a rapid amount of time. And even they can grow cover crops in a mere couple weeks. They can really grow much, much more than we could ever do south of there. And, of course, large farmers, there was about 30 farmers represented there. They were happy with that turnout. They said it represented around 100,000 acres, so it was a you know a large turnout there in an acreage-wise anyway for that. But about half the farmers up there uh, have cattle, and being able to use uh, cover crops in 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 conjunction with their perennial grasses is is something that is very common and part of um, uh, why I was there to to help them. Uh, think about other strategies where they could use cover crops. And I was, I was impressed with what they were already doing, uh, but I uh, think that they were able to take some, of the, some new thoughts and, and be able to, uh, especially some new species to be able to try. So I'm going to round up, uh, wrap up this topic with going right back into my backyard, so to speak, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. My, it looks totally different than almost any other place in the world, but uh, one of my favorite pictures of our area, I took this picture myself, went up in a small plane and a couple years ago, just showing the amount of cover crops used in our area. Um, we literally do have about 60 to 70% of our fields are covered. Uh, just thinking today as I was at a local meeting coming back, I was actually feeling pretty good about the amount of cover crops that I'm seeing now because we had a little warm up and the snow melted here so you can see the fields again later this year because of the late fall but nonetheless a lot of cover crops so i'm going to open it up here again if there's any questions or comments uh, that anybody wants to share uh, go for it um, uh, so is there any comments anybody has to has to share about about my trip my travels any questions about any specific place that i mentioned well, I'll just well, if you, I'll give you one more chance here about any other cover crop question. I'm just saying I'm gonna I'm gonna talk next week uh, about a topic that we could say is bordering in the controversial side, but gaining momentum, and that is planting naked seed to reduce pest pressure. Uh, so I'll be talking about that uh, the next time uh, when we have our webinar, and uh, that's sure to. I'm sure attract a lot of attention. I've been doing this for three years now, and I'm going to show you some data uh, that we have behind it. So, 
yeah, just to wrap up our evening here tonight, is there any other question anybody has at all? Any cover crop question at all? Or anything about our topic tonight that you've been thinking about? Anybody? Well, thank you. Appreciate those who joined us this evening. I know it was a little different time, but uh, just worked out way for me uh, this week with my speaking schedule. Thanks for accommodating that. Until we see each other again, stay curious and keep learning. <laughs>